brothers uh, who are here this morning, welcome, uh, and good morning to our friends uh, who are online as well. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, it might be helpful to have that with you, 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, and let me lead us in prayer uh, as we begin. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us by your Spirit through your Word, uh, and we pray that you'll speak to us now uh, as we look at this passage together, and we ask that uh, your Spirit would open our hearts um, to see and appreciate Jesus more and more, uh, and to, to learn how we should uh, relate to you, uh, that we might find uh, our hope in him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In a world full of uncertainty, we all want to feel secure. We all want to know that we are safe and that things in the end will be okay. What is it that we look to to give us that sense of security? And what is it that we rely on for our ultimate security and well-being? Israel of old needed security. Uh, last week in 1 Samuel chapter 7, 1 Samuel chapter 7, uh, it looked as if they had found it. Uh, we saw that how God's people cried out to him when they were in distress. And Samuel, God's prophet, spoke God's word to Israel. He challenged them to put away their idols and commit themselves fully to God. And they did. And when the Philistines attacked, Samuel sacrificed and prayed for them, playing the role of a priest. And God gave a decisive victory over the Philistines. And Samuel became judge for Israel to bring justice to the land. And the problems that had been raised at the end of the book of Judges were now at last being resolved. Samuel was God's prophet, judge, and priest. He led the people in a godly way. The Philistine threat was neutralized, and the land seemed secure. But there was one problem. Chapter 8, verse 1 says that Samuel grew old. His leadership, as good as it was, was not permanent. And then it says, he made his sons judges over Israel. And in verse 2, those sons, Joel and Abijah, they were based at Beersheba along the southern border of the land, long away from, long far from, from Samuel's base at Ramah, so he wouldn't have been directly involved in their work. And how did it turn out? Well, verse 3. His sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Now that's a big problem, isn't it? Because justice matters to God, and corruption matters to God. God had told Israel back in Exodus 23, You shall not pervert the course of justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent and the righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. God had warned his people in Deuteronomy 16, 19, You shall not pervert justice, do not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. It would be said later in Proverbs 17, 23, The wicked accepts a bribe in secret to pervert the cause of justice. 
God was very clear with his Old Testament people that corruption was not an option, that justice mattered. But Samuel's sons ignored that. Their motivation was greed. It says they turned aside after gain. I wonder if there's anyone here or anyone watching this online who needs to take this as a warning. Corruption is rife in our society, all the way through it. And the temptation to take bribes and give bribes is high. Don't do it. God is watching you. Better to be poor and honest than to be rich and corrupt. Better to climb the ladder slowly and honestly than to be a shooting star that eventually falls to the ground. Better to be unemployed and honest than to do a job that makes you lose your integrity. There are times when we, we have to make a stand and there are times when it will cost. But good ethics is generally good business, at least in the long term. Having the reputation of being incorruptible not only brings glory to God, it actually helps people have confidence in you. But Christians must maintain good ethics, not just because it's good business, because it might not actually be so in the short term, but because we have someone higher, even than the MACC, to whom we must give account, someone who knows everything. Joel and Abijah perverted the course of justice for bribes. And you know what? Now we are back to square one at 1 Samuel all over again. Godly old man with corrupt sons who are lined up to replace him. What should be done about this problem? Well, let's remember how the problems have been solved so far in 1 Samuel. When Hannah had a problem, she cried out to God in her desperation. And what did God do? God not only answered her prayer and gave her a son, but he raised up that son Samuel to provide the godly leadership that Israel needed. And he wiped out Eli's corrupt uh, family in a single day. When Israel had a Philistine problem in chapter 4, what did they do? They took things into their own hands. They tried to manipulate God, take the ark into battle. Backfired badly, came under his judgment. But then last chapter, chapter 7, when they had a problem, what did they do this time? They cried to God like Hannah. They listened to his word, they put away their idols, they confessed their sins, and God saved them. So what should they do when they've got this problem? It's clear, isn't it? Would God's people cry out to him this time and beg him to act? Would they trust him to raise them, to save them by raising up another leader like Samuel? Would they show that actually they are dependent not just on Samuel, but on God who raised him up? Would they do that? Well, in verse 4, the elders of Israel gather together and they come to Samuel at Ramah. And they tell him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. And here's their solution. Now appoint for us a king to judge us 
like all the nations. On the surface, there's actually nothing wrong with this request. God had already anticipated, he already answered it in Deuteronomy 17, right? Now look and see what's coming up on Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 to 15. God said, when you come into the land the Lord your God is giving you, and possess it and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. Right? Then it goes on to speak about the kingship. So what the elders are asking, are not, it's not wrong in itself, is it? Although in one sense, there's something a little bit fishy about it. Right? Remember, the problem with Eli was that he placed his sons in a position of responsibility, and his sons didn't follow his example. The problem with Samuel is that he placed his sons in a position of responsibility, and the sons didn't follow his example. And so what's their solution? Let's set up a monarchy, a system of government, where sons automatically replace their fathers, whether or not they follow their, their example. Right? Are they for real? Or is this an excuse to, to change the system to sideline Samuel? Samuel thinks actually trying to get rid of him. Uh, it says in verse 6 that it displeased Samuel when they said, give us the king to judge us, right? He's the prophet and judge. It's not a formal position, so what's that a sack? You can only take power from him by appointing someone over him. And so as far as Samuel is concerned, please can you appoint us a king to lead us means... We don't want you anymore, but we want to get rid of you in a way that still gives you face. Now, what do you do when someone tries to oust you from your position at work or in church or in your social club? What, what do you do when you're disappointed with the way things are working out? What do you do when you're displeased about something that's happened? Samuel doesn't take things into his own hands. He does what Israel was meant to do and what we are meant to do in times of trouble. What does he do? In verse 6, he prays to the Lord. He prays to the Lord. And you know, God doesn't respond in the way Samuel wants him to. He doesn't say, they are wrong, don't listen to them. And he doesn't change their minds either. God speaks his word to Samuel and shows him what's really going on. For he who looks upon the heart knows what's really going on. It's not just a rejection of Samuel. It's something far deeper. He says to Samuel in verse 7, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so are they also doing to you. You see, friends, when God evaluates our decisions, he looks below the surface. It's not just about what we do. It's also about why we do it. Israel wanted to embrace a monarchy, which is technically okay, but for the wrong reasons. Now, at this point, it's not clear what those reasons are, but God knows that deep down inside, what they're really doing is rejecting his kingship. And in judgment, he will let them do that. But in his mercy, he will first give them a chance to change their minds. 
And so he says to Samuel in verse 9, Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. That's what Samuel does. He once again brings them God's word. He warns them about the king. Look what he says in verse 11. And notice if you see a, a word keep on being repeated. All right? He says this. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give it to his officers and servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of the flocks and you shall be his slaves. You notice the repeated word? Take, 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 take. And in the end, the very thing that was accomplished by the Exodus, freedom from slavery, we brought back at least in part, by the monarchy. And we see that in the end of verse 17. And then Samuel gives his final warning in verse 18. He says, In that day you will cry out to because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourself. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. That decision would be irreversible. But the people who don't want to listen to Samuel's voice, they say, verse 19, No, there shall be a king over us, that we might be like all the nations. Right? That's a phrase from Deuteronomy that they used before. And then, and then, you look what they say next. That our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. That bit is not in Deuteronomy. That's the bit they add. And now we see why they want a king. They want a king that he might judge them and go before them and fight their battles. And, and actually, you can understand that, can't you? Uh, the biggest problem Israel had was military. They had enemies in the land, always looking to exploit their weakness. They didn't have a standing army. They didn't have a permanent military ruler. Israel needed a king who lead them, who go before them, who fight their battles. That was the obvious way to peace and security. Or was it? Who fought for them when they came out of Egypt? Who fought for them when they came into the promised land? Who fought for them in the time of the judges again and again and again and saved them from their enemies? Was it not God, their king? And isn't it true that every time they turned away from God and worshipped idols, that is the time their enemies defeated them. And when they repented and cried out to God, God always raised up judges to save them. Unlike the nations around them, they were meant to be held together by something quite different from just a monarchical institution. They were meant to be held together by the covenant. Their treaty with the Lord, Yahweh, their God. For in that covenant, God had promised to look after them as long as they obeyed Him. 
And so their security should have been in God himself. So there's actually nothing wrong in having a king. God was always going to give them a king anyway. That was always part of his plan. Having king and keeping the covenant were not necessarily mutually exclusive. Under King David, both would operate at the same time. But you see, the problem here was that they wanted to place their security in the hands of a human king because they didn't really trust God. They didn't believe in, they didn't rely on his promise to them. And God rightly saw that as a rejection of his ultimate kingship. Friends, we as God's people must learn to trust God and his promises. We must find our security in him and not look elsewhere for it. There are many things that are not wrong. But we are wrong if we look to them for our security. Nothing wrong with having money. It can be a blessing from God. It can be very useful. But if that's where our ultimate security lies, that's wrong. We will never be secure. 1 Timothy 6 says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. How do people who have money avoid putting their hope in the uncertainty of riches? Well, the passage continues. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life. Right? Put your hope in God, not your money. Nothing wrong in having work. It is right that we should work if we can. But our ultimate security comes not from knowing who we are in our company. It comes from knowing who we are in Christ. One day, you'll be retrenched or sacked or retire. Right? Unless you die first, one of those things will happen. Lah. But if you're in Christ, if you're a child of your heavenly Father, that is never going to change for all eternity. Much more secure than your job. Nothing wrong with having leaders in church. It's biblical. It's important to have godly leaders in church who will teach God's word, who will stand up against falsehood. But if we get, up, if we get our security from them instead of Jesus, then we're a bit like the Israelites. If we think our leaders are the ones who will keep us safe, as long as we're following them, then we'll be okay, then, then, then we're in danger of being led astray. Right, you must test whatever I say and our other leaders say against the word of God because security is not actually found in church leaders, but in the word of God that they're meant to be teaching. As God's church, we need to rely on him in prayer, call upon him for our leadership needs. We need to cry out to God and ask him to give his church godly leadership in every generation. We must never think that we need to have so-and-so as one of our leaders. And if we have them or them or them, then everything will be okay. No, 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 friends, that's not right. In the end, Jesus is our leader. It is his church. We bring our needs before him and we trust him as our ultimate leader. Nothing wrong with having methodologies. 
Nothing wrong with having tools or programs. Christianity Explored is a great way of introducing our friends to the Savior. But our trust is not in Christianity Explored as a program. No program ever saved anyone. Our trust is in the Word of God that is read in the program and in the Lord Jesus to whom it points. There's lots of good things, lots of good people, good programs God can use that we can enjoy. But when we put a trust in these things instead of in God, the moment we look to these things for our security as individuals or as a church, then, then we are being idolatrous. We must look beyond these things to the God behind them and take a lesson from Israel's mistake. When Samuel hears what the people say, he goes back and repeats it to God. And God says in verse 22, Obey their voice and make them a king. He warned them, but they insisted. And his judgment upon them would be to give them what they wanted. And brothers and sisters, be careful what you ask for. Sometimes we can be so one-track minded, we can be so convinced that we know what is best, we demand it from God in prayer. Lord, you must give me this. I'm believing you for this. Right? Don't, don't be like that. Lah. Of course, we must pray and ask God for things. That's given. He delights to hear, to answer the prayers of his children. But it's good also to remember our weakness in asking and actually express that, God, I really, really want this. Please, can you give it to me? But you know what? I know your will is best and your will be done. The passage ends with Samuel dismissing the Israelites from the meeting. Go every man to his city, he says in verse 22. They had demanded a king, and soon they will get one. My brothers and sisters, we've already seen the examples and the warnings from this passage that apply to us as as God's New Testament people. When in need, we should cry out to the Lord. He is the one who is our security. We should put our hope in Him and not in the things and the people of this world, even in His good provisions. He is the one who gives us security and we should trust in His wisdom, not our own. As we conclude, there is one more thing from this that we can be thankful for as God's New Testament people. You see, brothers and sisters, we do have a king to judge us and go before us and to fight our battles. He's not a human king whose kingship is a rejection of the kingship of God. This king is both God and human, and he perfectly expresses God's kingship over us. As we saw in our gospel reading, this king was also rejected by his people just as God was rejected as king in this passage. But this king was vindicated by his father who raised him from the dead. Unlike the kings Samuel warned about, his kingdom is not of this world. He's not the kind of king whose motto is take, 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 take. He's the king whose motto is give, 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 give. He's the servant king who gave his life for us, his people, 
who died on the cross in our place to take our sin and our punishment that, that we can be forgiven and have eternal life in his kingdom. He is the king who fights our battles, decisively defeating all our spiritual enemies on the cross and will eventually destroy even death itself. He is the king who gave us his word and his spirit and so rules his people. He is the king who gives his gifts to, to, to his church and supplies our need. He is the king who gives us permanent security. The Bible says that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord, our King. And if we are really in Him then our eternal destiny is absolutely secure. So no matter what happens today and no matter what happens tomorrow, we can face our future with confidence. For with Christ our King, we are secure indeed. And let us be ever grateful for that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus is our perfect King. And that those who trust in him are, are perfectly secure for, for all eternity. Uh, please would you help us to trust and obey him as our king to the very end. To cry out to you with our problems through him. We pray that you help us to keep our ultimate hope firmly in you and your promises. And, and not to place it in the things or people of this world, however good they may be. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.